Hey, this is David Ellison from Megadeth here. It is time to focus on metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another episode of Focus on Metal. Hope everybody enjoyed the last two weeks that we spent with uh, producer Jason Slater as we dug into the uh, the years he spent working with Queensryche. If you haven't listened to that one yet, then be sure to head up to focusonmetal.net, go to the episodes page, and check out episodes 375 and 376 for all the scoop on those Queensryche years. You can also get that, obviously, on iTunes at either one of the Focus on Metal feeds. But this week, we're going to swing our uh, direction over to the movies, which, of course, can only mean one thing. I am talking inside L.A. Metal. We've had uh, Bob Nalbandian on a couple times talking about uh, a few of the parts of the trilogy as we went through uh, parts one and two. But recently, the last of the trilogy, the uh, L.A. thrash scene came out, and in particular, part two of that two-part part three, if you can uh, wrap your head around that. And so we thought that would be a good idea to get somebody on the show talking all about that. Now, originally, when a lot of the press did go on for uh, the uh, thrash part of it, uh, Dave Ellison, who's the narrator of it, actually went and did a whole ton of that press. We uh, we decided to not even dip our toes into that whole deal. We've had Dave on. He's awesome, awesome to talk to. Maybe we'll have him on if he does some press for the uh, the second part of his My Life with Death book, which is on uh, pre-order, by the way, if you head over to his EMP Label Group website. But we always like to get uh, one of the guys from behind the scenes. We've been friends with Bob for a long time, but this time, and he's been trying to do this for a little bit, he actually offered up Carl Alvarez, one of his partners in crime in the Inside LA Metal series. And I guess Richie's been talking with Carl for a while on Facebook. I never had the pleasure, but uh, just a little bit ago, I was able to take an evening and chat with Carl all about the whole Inside Ellie Metal series, but then also just digging down in particular on Inside Ellie Metal, The Rise of LA Thrash Metal Parts 1 and 2. So that's what I got in store for you this week as we get an insider's view of not only the LA Thrash scene, as you'll find out as we talk with Carl, but also an insider's view on the making of uh, what has been an awesome metal documentary series. But uh, first, what do you say we kick off with a track of the week? Yep, it's been about 30 years in the making. I think the first one came out in 1989, but uh, past Focus on Metal guest Leather Leone has finally decided to put out her second solo album. Yep, in April, she put out Leather 2 via High Roller Records. Of course, the last recorded version that we heard of Leather was back in 2013 with the, the Chastain album We Bleed Metal, which we talk about here on Focus on Metal. But uh, for any of you guys that happen to follow Leather on Twitter and on the social media at all, know that uh, she hooked up with some great musicians after that, and uh, especially uh, guitarist Vinny Tex has been a 
pretty uh, hardcore collaborator uh, ever since that time period. She got really excited about these guys, what they were playing, and, and how they were backing her up, and all that spun off and led to Leather 2. So what do you say we spin off uh, track one from Leather 2, the uh, most aptly titled Juggernaut? <laughs> Once again, there you go, Juggernaut from Leather 2, the latest solo release from Leather Leone. And obviously, you can keep up with Leather on all the usual uh, social media suspects on Facebook, facebook.com slash Leather Leone. Also, she's always tweeting over on Twitter. But right now, let's get down to uh, what we really came to do this week, and that is to have a talk with Carl Alvarez, one of the guys behind the Inside LA Metal series. And uh, we are talking in particular with Carl this week about the uh, third part of the trilogy, Inside LA Metal, The Rise of LA Thrash Metal. And of course, you can get this thing for yourself over at uh, Amazon, pretty much any place you can uh, buy your favorite uh, DVDs. And also, it's been streaming on all the different streaming services as well, which is very, very cool. And if you want even more information on this, you could also hit up the uh, main website at metalrockfilms.com. And there you can even get yourself some uh, inside LA Metal swag, including uh, some pretty cool bundles that they put together recently. But right now, it is time to get down to business with filmmaker Carl Alvarez. Hey, Scott. Hey, Carl. How you doing, man? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? All right. Good to finally talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to remember this interview every time I listen to it because the the news of today is Gibson going bankrupt. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it'll be memorable to me. I'll remember this day and this interview and the news. <laughs> yeah, I know. That is pretty crazy, isn't it? But uh, I don't know. There's been, you know, a lot of write-ups about that in, in the, in uh, some of the, you know, some of the gear press and stuff talking about, 
you know, some of the stuff they did wrong and, and, and yeah, it's just, it's just crazy to, to think that they're, you know, you think they're too big to fail, but they're, uh, they're filing. Yeah. I, I think what you talk about, you know, the, 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 them as a manufacturer dealing with a lot of the musicians and their customer service is kind of broke down and how they function internally kind of broke down. Um, but you know, there's other factors too. It's just, the used market and the oversaturation of instruments. I mean, it's and kids really not being into guitars anymore. They're into other things. You know, it's not like when we grew up, where we were influenced so much by rock, and we wanted to, you know, really play guitar or be involved in that. You know, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it definitely. And it's just even the, you know, I know that a lot of internal things there have kind of broken down and, and processes, adding a lot of cost into the overall product. And I mean, you know, if you're, you know thinking back you know if you're an 18 year old kid trying to buy your first guitar you're going to spend you know you know between four to eight hundred dollars and get an american standard from fender or you're going to end up putting down you know two and a half grand on on a gibson you're probably going to buy the fender yep exactly yep that's for sure but uh, i figure they'll still be around for a while they'll uh, they'll restructure and and they'll be out there and maybe they'll maybe they'll do the right stuff and uh you know It'll be uh, still be a legacy brand, but if if not, well, I got a few put away, so I'm I'm good for now. Yeah, <laughs> I, that was my first electric guitar, a Gibson Explorer. So nice. Calibre, yeah, yeah. What, so, what year was it? I don't know. I got it as used, and I bought it in '81. It was definitely manufactured in Kalamazoo. Um, I don't know. I'm I haven't done enough research on really how uh, you know maybe maybe I should take it to a evaluator to get it evaluated yeah i mean even if just open the back and get what the date codes are off the pots you should be able to cross-reference that and that'll give you a pretty good idea what year it is oh okay yeah that's a good idea yeah that's the that's the dirt simple way to do it and uh, yeah i've got a i've got a 76 explorer so it's uh you know in the first year they decided to come back and make them again so yeah it's it's pretty nice and i got it back in the uh back in the 80s when you couldn't give them away people just you know everyone wanted a jackson or a charvel or a kramer and and uh, walked in, and it was used. They wanted like two hundred and fifty bucks in an original hard shell case, and the whole thing. And uh, there you go. So took advantage of it. Uh, that's a good buy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and but it's just amazing the stuff you could get back then. Because again, everybody wanted the you know the pointy hockey stick guitars, and they didn't want any of the any of the classics. So that that was my that was my good snag from those years. <laughs> Very good. So, anyways, having you on today, so we can. Uh, we can talk about uh, the uh, Inside Metal series, and in particular, the uh, the last part of the trilogy, the rise of uh, L.A. thrash metal. And, and I got to ask you, how did how did Bob rope you into uh, getting involved in this whole huge endeavor? Well, we had been um, we had been pretty good friends throughout the years, and obviously lovers of hard rock and metal, and. You know, he's we're, we live in the same city, so it was kind of eventually that we would eventually meet, and as well as just become friends because we had a lot of mutual friends. But how he kind of got me involved, we were actually doing a kind of a video cast that we were putting together along with the Shockwaves video hmm. cast that Bob did on a regular basis, and we just go out on site and interview different bands. We interviewed Michael Schenker and Lips from Anvil and. You know, it was right around the time where it was proposed to him uh, via uh, another podcast that he was doing at the time on the subject of producers. And Joe Floyd was on the panel on this particular podcast. And it actually came up about Los Angeles uh, heavy metal. It seemed to be the subject matter within this 
this uh, podcast. And um, uh, Joe Floyd basically has a, a guy that he works with that is the executive producer on this um, Inside Metal series. Mm-hmm. And he brought Bob in as well as bringing me in because it was kind of we were in that world at that time of visual and and editing and all that already so we were kind of up to speed in that capacity so it was easy for me to jump in there and kind of um, pull all the information together they were already in the midst of doing interviews they probably had about 20 interviews already under their belt by then this is going back to 2012 yeah um, the pioneers was being put together but it was already kind of forged that there's going to be three parts and the third part was this uh the one we're talking about today which is the la thrash metal scene uh and that whole thing so yeah so long story short that's how it came together oh crazy because yeah i mean i remember talking to bob you know early on he was talking to me about you know wanting to do this and kind of what he was thinking of and all that and it was just you know from what he described and, and kind of what i envisioned of the amount of work that was going to be involved just just knowing me editing you know this show and doing audio for every single week for it and in video was just that much harder to edit than audio is that you know the way he wanted to do it and what he was proposing i was like wow this is just going to be just going to be crazy and then you go pioneers came out and i was like son of a bitch he actually did it and uh and just seeing these actually evolve to to now when you get to this third one you guys really kind of have a nice a nice rhythm and cadence i think to to how you've been putting these together and uh you can really see kind of a growth from pioneers all the way through and into uh, to almost like the mature product when you get to the third part. I kind of look at it as it's like you, you get the appetizer with with pioneers, you get the the the, the meal with the whole um, you know LA metal explodes the third the second one and the third one is like dessert. This is the <laughs> thing that everybody's been waiting for because when we started, it's like oh these are great and people love them. Like, when are you guys going to do the thrash one? We really want to see that one. So that would seem to be the one that uh, people were really, really anticipating, you know? Yeah, well, especially now, too, because, you know, thrash has just kind of been on this really amazing rise again over the last three to four years. And so I'm sure that even built a ton more anticipation. And then, of course, you got Junior as, as the narrator for this one, which just puts the whole thing over the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a good acquisition. Uh, Bob has had a good uh, relationship with a lot of the people in this community for many, many, many years. I mean, he's pretty much the the original guy, if you really think about it. In 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 Los Angeles, you know, I mean, you got a lot of other people out across the country that were doing it early too with their fanzines, and Bob was doing his fanzine too very early on. I mean, you can probably go back to. You know, Brian Slagle with his new heavy metal review. And then the next step is Bob, basically. So with his magazine, The Headbanger, in 82 and 83. So he had forged a good relationship with a lot of these people along the way. And obviously, he's had, had great contacts with them. So uh, David Elvison was a good acquisition for sure. Yeah, definitely. That's one cool thing about it that makes this very authentic is that you know that, that Bob is kind of this old school you know, original guy that was, that it's kind of like, you know, he didn't just have to go out and find these people. They were all friends with him all along and stuff. So you, you know, this isn't just this guy who decided to pop up and do this, that he's, he's been intellectually invested in this thing for almost his whole entire life. So it, I think it does add a lot of, a lot of credence to what he's putting out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
And, uh, you know, a guy like me, I'm really behind the scenes. I probably will always be behind the scenes. But, you know, you kind of need that person up front to really kind of put the face to the whole thing. And Bob's definitely the real deal. So, Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's he's definitely that. And, uh, yeah, I've always enjoyed working with him through the years and, and having him on the show. And Hey, uh, this is Bob Nelbandian from the Shockwaves Hard Radio podcast, the Shockwaves Skull Sessions podcast, and the Shockwaves videocast. And you are tuned in to focus on metal he's you know just been a been a cool friend to have so yeah it's, I'm, I'm happy that he's kind of had this uh this huge success with this but he also you know it's a cool thing with bob too is that um you know just having you come and work and and be on the show with us is kind of like you know let's let carl get out there let's let carl you know do some talking so you know i gotta give him some props for that too and kind of kind of sharing the wealth with everybody which is uh you know a typical bob thing yeah for sure for sure so, um, you know, as far as it's going on, you know, you're talking about you guys, you know, being the behind the scenes guy. And, and I watch these things. And one of the things that I, I actually kind of get bummed about, to be honest, is you go to the special features and you, you kind of get these little snippets of stuff. And you're like, oh, there's got to be like, you just kind of wish that, that every one of those snippets was like another 15 minutes long. Because, you know, there's got to be some other some other great footage that you guys just kind of like had to trim away. And uh do you, are you thinking at all about maybe being able to use some of that on a, on a later date, some other project? Because, I mean, you must have tons of great footage. Well, the way the whole thing is structured, and it goes to, to all of the volumes uh, into this, but in speaking in, of this, we really had to structure it in such a way that as, as you watch it, it's really you know structured in a storytelling way, obviously. Mm-hmm. And every story lends itself to all the parts. So we pretty much obviously took the cream of the crop and put it in there. Now, yeah, we did have to trim some things, but it would be hard to kind of pull out more stuff because we actually gave we gave everybody the whole enchilada basically with the mm-hmm. movie. And I know it feels like, oh, wow, the, these little kind of nuggets that are thrown in as extras that you guys see. Um, yeah, I would say that that probably maybe some of the leftovers, maybe there's some other leftovers, but you, I could safely say you're seeing the really the, the whole enchilada when you watch the movie. So awesome. So in, in the, I got to ask, did, did Oz Fox ever speak? Because uh, every time <laughs> that those scenes came up, that was like, that was my weekend at Bernie scene where Oz Fox is Bernie. Like he just kind of sits there motionless every single time the band appears. Well, you're gonna. I mean, people who are actually listening to this interview are gonna find, and if they're not up to speed with the Inside Metal series as well as the Thrash one, why is Oz Fox in this movie, and why is Striper in it? Well, it's funny. You, you both obviously, I worked on it, and you've seen it. Uh, and speaking of Oz Fox, he's kind of really deadpan in the whole thing <laughs> <laughs> because we interview everybody. The reason why we had Striper in there, though, just to kind of footnote it, is. Um, you know, there was a lot of parallels. They were definitely in the second part when the metal scene explodes, the whole sunset strip thing. But they did some shows with a lot of thrash bands, which is kind of strange. You think about it. Uh, in 82, they did a show before it was called Thrash in Long Beach uh, when they were called Rock's Regime with Metallica, when Metallica was a Southern California rock band. Right. Uh, as well with, with Hyrax before they became Hyrax, and uh, they were called LA Chaos. And we interviewed Kate and Tube in regards uh, to that particular show. But they kind of re- recap a lot of the these incidences where they're they're crossing paths with a lot of these guys. And uh, you know, Oz Fox is 
it's it's kind of a funny funny kind of guy. I mean, he didn't really open up on camera, so it's kind of a strange kind of deal that he's just kind of sitting there. Kind of, we did that interview on a Saturday morning. Um, I don't know, maybe he didn't have his his coffee yet. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny because we've been we've like we've been backstage with them, and uh, it's almost been the same thing where you know the band they're kind of all like hanging in the green room, and, and Oz is just off doing his own thing with other people so i'm just watching that and it's like oh i guess that's just it's just him but it just took it to a new level because he just like never seems to move at all it's like is he is it just like you know an oz mannequin there so yeah just i, I just kind of consider you know when we're doing the interview it, it, it was kind of like the robert sweet michael sweet show really uh-huh. <laughs> when it comes to Trevor. not to say that you know it would degrade oz fox and his role in the band because he's hugely important you know mm-hmm. that both those guys in, in terms of guitar and and the sound, he's 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 definitely a key member in that band. But you know, it was just he didn't feel like talking, so <laughs> I thought he would chime in on something. But it was funny afterwards; he kind of really started getting animated and talking after we kind of shut off the cameras and stuff. So mm. I don't know it was <laughs> how it was. Yeah, it's a it's a lead guitarist thing, I guess. You know, and another cool guest that that, that I was really excited to see in here is that you had Bill Matoyer, which is which is amazing. That you know, he's kind of like this this kind of guy that's like hanging in the background in the metal blade story, then you don't really ever see him as a, as a behind the scenes guy. So it was great to see him in this. Yeah. Bill Matoyer is probably the most down to earth, realistic person in the whole metal scene. And doesn't get, he gets a lot of credit for the people who are in the know. I mean, Bill Matoyer was the guy, you know, um, and those Slayer records and trouble and, and, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And he's still, diehard metal metal guy but he's just he's just it, it took actually a while to convince him to actually do it because he's not kind of he's kind of shies away from that mm. but he really digs what uh bob has done and he you know he comes out to all the the the, the screenings that we've had and he's just gone on and on about he, he, that he's been in the scene and he still learns things about um, what happened uh, when when it happened back then? So he's he's been very supportive, and it was really cool to get him in there because he's he's a definitely key component to Los Angeles and the whole Metal Blade connection and uh, producing and working with these bands that became superstars in the whole thrash and heavy metal scene. It's pretty great.
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think people have a real clear appreciation of, you know, kind of what Bill brought to the game with just in the whole production thing where, you know, you're in a club and you listen to this music and you think, how do you actually record this? And here's the guy who figured out how to do it and to do it really well. And, and I think a lot of producers even today take what he did and they've just kind of expanded on it. But I think in the realm of actual production of, of like really heavy, you know, speed thrash music, Bill is just kind of the cornerstone for that stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You, you hear it time and time and again, and bands are they're still lining up, uh, waiting for him to produce things. And it's probably been good that Thrash is kind of, uh, or this type of music in general, the underground has really had a renaissance in the last, uh, you know, five to seven years, you know, especially now. It's really on a upward trajectory yet again. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of what I like, too, is that, you know, some people could have made uh, a series like this and just f- really played off on just we have all these, you know, everything, every ad would be we have Lars Ulrich kind of thing. But the fact that you guys have some really great behind the scenes people to, to bring, uh, you know, having the original manager for Slayer and he's in here a lot, really kind of tying them into the whole scene and, and what they did and their evolution and all that. I think a lot of people trying to do this they wouldn't have included that stuff. They would have just been like pushing, you know, Lars and Junior and just just the major stuff. But you guys have kind of more of the the cornerstone guys as, as well as as a lot of the behind the scenes guys. And uh, I think those scenes are some of the best in here. I kind of like to look at it as that everybody that's been interviewed for this series is all the same. It's like a ground level mm-hmm. because we interpret it from that point of view. Like these guys didn't have anything. They were in their U-Hauls. If they were lucky to get a tour and they were sleeping on people's basement floors, I mean, it was the whole deal. So everybody, as far as I'm concerned, the way they're represented here, they're all the same. A Lars is just the same as a Caton is just the same as an Eric Meyer is just as the same as a, as a Rocky George or anybody else that was playing in the scene. So, it's this pure, you know. That's what. That's probably one of the goals we wanted to have is just really tell it in a very pure way and have the menagerie of all of these people coming together. It's kind of like a big high school reunion, and everybody's telling their stories. So that's that really is very important to us, and I'm glad we kind of like pulled it off for people because it's really important to be for it to be represented that way. Yeah, and you know, one other thing when I when I talk to people about this. And I, and I try to actually actively sell like all the titles to them is the, is that you guys created a really cool storyline and I don't know whether you did it on purpose or not. Cause I never really got to talk to Bob about this whole aspect, but that you have certain people that are in every single one of the titles and kind of their roles in the titles, you know, either increase or decrease by their involvement. So that you have like, like Juan Garcia, you know, he's, he's in each one of them and, it's like one of these characters that that ties it all together across all of them. Then you have people that are only in one or, or only in another and stuff. And was that something you guys deliberately did to kind of tie all these things as a as an LA storyline, or did it just kind of work out that way with the interviews? Uh, a little bit of both. I think as some of the interviews kind of evolved on the spot, uh, the the questions evolved in a broader sense, as you say, everybody kind of fits in three and some people fit in one. It just, I think it was, it depends how much they were involved in that part. But you, you know, you took a good example of Juan Garcia being a guy from, from um, the San Gabriel Valley and, 
being a guy on the scene as a as per, a, a lover of metal and then evolving in his band and playing and giving Chris Holmes a ride to the shows because he didn't have a car to the Wasp Abattoir shows at the Troubadour when they had to play together and and then his involvement later in the whole thrashing Agent Steel. I mean, he he has a rich broad broad representation in this as he should because you know he still continues in body count and. He's still an active musician with active. I say it's a lot of the people in the in the in the film are very still much very active. So, uh, intentional or not, I'm just glad the way it turned out. I just think it's it, it really uh, I, I don't know what it is but when you watch all of them it's just it's just pretty cool that you you see certain people and they might be in one and then in two and then they really aren't involved in the in the thrash but they tie one and two together and then uh, yeah I just thought it was kind of just a cool collage you guys painted across all of them by by the people that you have and and some of them it's also cool because being like a longtime listener of, of Bob's podcast you know some of these guys have been on there and stuff and you hear them and you've heard the music that they've done, but you may not necessarily have actually, you know, seen them sitting there talking. So it's it's tied a lot of what Bob did um, for years on podcasts and stuff into a, into a documentary format as well, which I know a lot of people have commented to me is that it's pretty cool to actually start to see these interviews with these guys instead of just hearing them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the whole project kind of evolved, too. I mean, the starting point of 2012 to where we were still kind of in the midst of doing some filming by 2014, 2015, we didn't realize that it. we saw some holes that we needed to fill. Um, we interviewed uh, David Elveson one day, and then we found out we didn't realize he was at – he was doing a studio project at Jay Reston's house, the producer, uh, with Frank Bellow. And so we were able to actually 
get Frank Bello to sit down too, which was interesting because it defies logic in one sense. Like, well, why do you got anthrax in here? This isn't about LA. Not exactly. His his perspective is coming in there, coming to LA and playing with Raven and 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 Striper for the first time, and then coming back again with suicidal tendencies and playing. LA. So it's interesting to hear his uh, his take on the scene as well, and how um, how they were a part of that as well. Which it's, it's which is great. Yeah. One thing I did I did I thought it was kind of a, a a nice little change in in the third part was that you did kind of do a segment where you started to focus on just some individual bands and take them through some of their stories. And so like like one of my favorites there is I've been a long time fan of uh, of armored saint so to have you guys do like a whole section within the documentary really positioning armored saint to where they where they belong in this whole story and, and not that you go into detail about everything in the band which would be very cool but that just kind of accurately you know depicted where they stood within this whole story i thought that was pretty nice yeah they were you know if if they were make a five years after when they started they would probably be a thrash band they had that intensity. They had that attitude. They they had the whole thing. They also came from that world of Judas Priest, UFO, Black Sabbath, Ted Nugent. You know, very seventies organic kind of hard rock too. So they were young kids too, and they were crazy. And they brought us this sense of uh, intensity that you saw later in at thrash shows. They were the band hmm. before thrash was ever created, even though they weren't doing thrash in that sense. But they were they stepped it up a notch compared to a lot of the other bands that they were playing with on the Sunset Strip before they got steined. And they were very different. They brought that English European sound and people were really latched onto it because I don't think anybody else was doing it. Wasp, they had an intense show where they thrashed. No, they were more just kind of the big bombastic Blackie Lawless crazy maniac on stage. Armin Saint would play shows with them and they would work it would work great together because you got the best of both worlds. But Armin Saint on their own, they were their they were their own thing. And so it, it, they were probably a lot of influences to a lot of different people before they started their bands. I'm sure the guy um, you know, we interviewed Eric Meyer from Dark Angel. Is seeing Armin Saint for him the first time kind of brought it home for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, before Dark Angel was even started, and, and of course Juan Garcia, there's there's so many people in LA that really point to Armored Saint as a as a kind of a jump off point for this new uh, direction. And obviously Armored Saint going on tour with Metallica and being friends with them early on, kind of this puts them in that in that environment of thrash metal, but not being exactly thrash, mm-hmm. right?
Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's, it's cool because, you know, a lot of people, you know, they know either they don't really understand Armored Saint or they really haven't looked into some of the, the earlier stuff and they may only know him as, oh, well, you know, some of the recent stuff and, and after John was with Anthrax and all that. But to let people know, like you just said, like how much of an influence they actually had on the scene, kind of similar to what you guys did in the first part when, uh, you, you know, you talk about like like Mitch and his guitar playing and people might not understand how how much of a, of a player like that Mitch was and how what an influence he was. And it's only when you watch, you know, this documentary that you go, wow, I, I got to go find out more about this guy. And I think you did the same thing with Armored Saint in, in the third one. Uh, so, yeah, when you even talk about Mitch, I'm sure you're talking about Mitch Perry. If yes. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you know, these guys that were like, you know, as time passes, people were kind of like, well, you know, I mean, they wouldn't even put them into play. But, you know, you mentioned Mitch Perry and how he brought the whole guitar thing. And we're just talking about the maybe the first, even second volume of mm -hmm. uh, the series. But these people, you, the, you'd be surprised they're, they 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 had their they had their moments. But the moment is, is so important to really mention, because this is really kind of a pivotal moment for where hard rock metal and thrash was going and this was set the this was the blueprint this set the pace for how it is today we can come back to maybe somebody like you mentioned stephen craig the the first manager of slayer who actually him and carrie created the template for what slayer is today right. down to the logo down to the attitude down to the stage performance and what they were projecting out is still used in Slayer shows today. So you can really point to these key players that um, were really, it, it was hugely important to what thrash metal is today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it's all in here, which is so cool. And, and, and it's even perfect timing too, because, you know, you, you, you think about, you know, even, even like 10, 15 years ago, the amount of information that might've been available on, on hard rock or metal bands and it was just starting and and a lot of it was all like cash grab stuff that was put out now you're starting to get in this era of like really quality information coming out a lot of of great books coming out that are that aren't really cash grab things they're more like they're done for the for the love of the music and to get information out and and then you you know you got this whole documentary where it really has all the great players in it, and but it also it really debunks the whole thing of you know if you think ten years ago you mentioned L.A. metal, everybody would be thinking hair bands, and I think one of the huge things that this project does is it starts to really put all of that into perspective, and and then you find out that that whole you know hair band MTV thing is just this tiny little fraction of what actually happened in LA and how much other pivotal stuff occurred there. And it just puts it into a whole different perspective. And, and for like those of us on the East coast that didn't really get to experience this firsthand, we're getting this all in little news snippets. It really gives such a better perspective of, of actually what LA brought to everything. Yeah, I think, you know, doing the first and second part, it, it kind of had a location kind of vibe to it. Mm -hmm. Sunset Strip, Starwood, Troubadour, Roxy, Whiskey, Go-Go. It had like a destination. But with this Thrash one, it's kind of, you kind of have to look, read between the lines. Thrash was a global phenomenon mm -hmm. from the get-go. 
I mean, when people mention the big four, obviously three of them were LA based originally, uh, two still live here. And the third obviously is East coast anthrax, but it really is. And has been probably maybe Kerrang and the European press picked up on thrash so quickly when out of the gate, we had our American magazines were kind of slow to take to the whole thing, the hip Raiders and creams and that sort of thing. Right. The, but the fanzines here and in Europe, as well as the Art Shocks and the Kerangs, they were hungry for this stuff. And, you know, so I always put um, thrash metal in a global thing, in a global, global, um, whatever you'd like to call it. So um, I don't know. That's kind of my take on the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Now, has this one been like the most successful one of the three so far? Uh, I would say it's gotten a lot of notoriety. I would also say, too, that, you know, the second one, which really delves again into the Sunset Strip scene and the whole glam metal, the second phase of glam metal, not the New York Dolls phase or Bowie, but the real kind of glam, I guess, that was evolving out of L.A. That story has been told in different ways. And we did our own thing on what we thought it should be. And I think we did a very good representation that probably would change views of people that had perceived notions about what it was from all the MTV stuff. But, you know, you think about it, there hasn't been much on Thrash. You know, obviously Sam Dunn did a lot, um, probably brought things to the forefront. Um, but obviously, we wanted to keep the same format that we've been doing and put this this new spin. And it wasn't really a spin. It's just the story hadn't been told. Nobody chose to tell it. Obviously, Bob had lived it, and he was a firsthand person. I was around it, too, at that same time, going to a lot of the shows. Uh, my first thrash show was uh, Celtic Frost, uh, Running Wild, and Voivod at Long Beach Fenders in Long Beach, <laughs> which was crazy. I I hadn't experienced that. Uh, I had seen Slayer a bunch of times, so it wasn't like a big deal in that sense. But to have these international bands come and play this local show, it was really intense. It was it was it it was it opened my mind up to a lot wow. of the scene was changing, and it wasn't. Those bands weren't part of the scene, but it was L.A. and and it was the scene to see these bands and you know and really catch it before it's gone because they didn't realize that I think they Celtic Cross came back maybe one or two times. Voivod came back quite a few times, but Voivod kind of evolved into kind of this uh, uh, kind of a progressive heavy metal mind numbing Pink Floydish kind of thing, you know. But back then it was Roar and Warren pain and those records that were really raw and and really uh defied the kind of sound that was happening at the time in the commercial hard rock world so it was a it was a big deal really to see these things you yeah know? i mean it's it's pretty cool that you even got to see that show because that's a that's like a notorious show right there right i mean that was one of those first big ones that uh i think was it is it noise that that put that on and i, I think i think that was the only time that, that running wild ever even toured the states because they had such a miserable experience on that tour oh i felt so bad for them because we, we like running wild. You know, it was different. It was more of a like power metal trip. Mm-hmm. We felt so bad for them because they just got booed. And it, was, it wasn't 
it wasn't right. It just wasn't right. It was. I just felt so bad for them, you know. Yeah. But I'm glad they've they they're still going strong to this day. So it's great to see that. You know? Yeah, yeah. It's just like who who decided to put that bill together is is just insane. It looked good on paper. It looked good on paper. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just I don't know. It's it would be like you know billing Mumford and Sons with Slayer. It's like no, don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, that's. I mean, that's cool that you got to see that. That's because, yeah, again, that that's that's one of those tours that kind of went down in in uh, in thrash history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was a happy accident. I was asked by a friend, and like, hey, we, we were go- we actually saw Metallica and, and Ozzy the next night hmm. at the same, not the same place, but across the the street or so at the Long Beach Arena. So we were we were in this world already. Like we were going to all the shows and making sure we didn't miss anything. So I guess not, because then that then then that, that next night show was another classic one there too, right? Ozzy and, and Talica oh. at Long Beach. That's one of those ones that gets written up as well. Yeah, I they did three nights. We went the second night. We had passes for the show. Mm-hmm. It's probably the second time I ever got passes and actually came face to face with Cliff uh, coming out of the just dressing room. And mm. it was really surreal because, you know, obviously he died like three months, four months later after that. So it was that, that particular show and that year of 86 was so important. Um, and I'm, I'm glad I was there to kind of see all these little things that were happening. I'll jump back to the other show. My friend who took me to the show of Celtic, Celtic Frost and, and Voivod, he was a DJ, Cosmo Bloom. And he was trying to interview um, somebody at the show, one of the bands or whatever, and he was having a hard time. And he got an interview with Tom Mariah because Tom Mariah was backstage hanging out. <laughs> And he had interviewed Tom Mariah and Snake from Voivod, or at least he got a drop from him. I guess Snake speaks French, so I think he got a, a, a station drop from mm-hmm. out of him. But he got to interview Tom Mariah. I remember when we were like, all right, that's great. You got to interview because that was kind of another happy accident. We would expect Tom Mariah to be at, a, you know, at the show. So Wow. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk about 84 and he's 86, and you're right. I mean, it was definitely a pivotal year and i mean at 86 i was on the radio here in the east coast and uh, and and doing a metal show and i can just remember that like my program director and he was actually a guy who was really into like hardcore but i played thrash and he would lose his freaking mind on me just mm-hmm. would be like he would like scribble stuff on on the on the albums like you know play this thing and I'm going to pummel you to death and things like that. He just absolutely just despised thrash and it drove him crazy that, uh, that I was playing this stuff. And it just, it was one of these things where it was still really trying to garner support for this kind of music. And uh, yeah, it just it, until some of those bands really started to break out, it, it was, it was rough going for a while. Well, it's interesting that you brought up college radio and you being kind of a, a person that was involved with that at that time. It was hugely important. We actually addressed that in the movie because mm. it's it's an important thing along with the fanzines. That under um, college radio or the underground radio was a huge benefactor uh, or the bands were a huge benefactor from this thrashing uh, that benefited from their exposure there because they were the only place they got played. Right. And we also seen a kind of this cross section too of, and we mentioned in the movie we have like a little snippet of Steve Ricardo being interviewed on KNEC talking about him working at a college station and how 
or involved with college radio and seeing the kind of turn from where they were playing hardcore punk and before you know it, it started to switch to more demand for thrash metal so you saw that evolution that was happening at that time because that's what was really going on punk was burning itself out mm-hmm. regardless of what people were saying you know the english bands were still coming over here here and touring you know gbh the english dogs I mean, they had some some vitality still left because I think the metals and the punks really started to come together, the the real underground scene. But as a whole, punk was kind of the black flags were going away and started to get a little more arty. And it just wasn't it wasn't having that punch. And thrash metal, even crossover, DRI, Suicidal, XL, all these bands kind of filled that void. Of, of what was coming up so cryptic slaughter too we met we interviewed scott peterson from yeah. Cryptic slaughter too and they had an important role in that whole evolution too as well yeah that was definitely cool that you had him on there i was i was really happy to see that and because that just kind of added an extra extra variety to to everybody you talk to and uh yeah he was pretty forthcoming with everything he said too which was really nice absolutely yeah he, he comes at it as a person in a band but he also comes at it as a fan mm-hmm. too so, which a lot, I think everybody brings that to the table with this, which is great. It's like we're like him and he's like us, so yeah. and we're in the same club, you know? Well, and that's kind of, I mean, that's also been uh, really an undercurrent of thrash, right? That's It's really that, it's almost like that American do-it-yourself ethic. I mean, it, it grows out of the, the DIY ethic of, of the new wave of British heavy metal and do-it-yourself. And, and again, a lot of these thrash guys, right? That you see them in, uh, you know, in, at everybody's shows and their fans and, um, you see that a lot with the, you know a lot of the stuff they talk about in San Francisco as well. So and it does, as you said, it comes across in in these uh, documentaries too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. It, it was a, obviously a labor of love for all of us, and you know, obviously the, that hard work we we wanted to put in, and of course the bands were like the real centerpiece, and the, these musicians that are telling their stories. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have we wouldn't have a movie, really. Yeah, and they did a fantastic job, and it was up to us to piece the material together, which was a lot. It was a lot of work uh, to piece it together and tell a concise story that comes across. Yeah, um, you guys, yeah. you guys hit a home run. Now, of course, you know I've been plugging this thing since the since since the first one you guys put out, and and uh, I have to ask because otherwise I'm going to have listeners asking me the same thing. Is uh, you know, you got any other any other great metal documentaries coming coming down the pipeline at us that you can talk about or you have planned? Uh, I know Bob is working on the uh, the same format for Inside Metal for the San Francisco scene. That should be uh, I think sometime next year. Nice. Um, where it goes after that, I don't know. I mean. When you take a lot of years out of your life to devote to this, it's really it's it's a real commitment and uh, you know i think it's a case by case as whatever project is going to come up i'm i'm being very vague because i really don't have an answer for you on that <laughs> It's this. It seems uh, on an anatomical level there is life for this. So maybe there's going to be a project down the road after the after the San Francisco thrash scene. But at this stage, I I I, I don't know. <laughs> nice, nice. So you know, obviously, you know, you've been. Go ahead. Has been working on a lot of different projects too. So yeah, he he his role will probably evolve. Um, you know, I'll be working on some stuff too. But will it be the metal or this format? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know, but I'll I'll be definitely doing some music stuff myself um, um, down the road, and 
maybe at some point we'll talk about it if it's metal or not as another <laughs> though <laughs> well you know if it is it's hard rock it's metal then yeah definitely you know shoot me an email or, or richie an email either way and uh yeah we'd like to have you come on and, and talk about it because i mean obviously our, you know our role is that we don't really have a good music press anymore and it's really it's down to this do-it-yourself thing right and and do it for the love of music and and let people know what's really going on and, and tune them into things and that's why we do it and that's why people listen to us so uh yeah whatever we can do to continue to to serve it and let it grow uh we, we're up for it so yeah. to, to that end of course people want to get a hold of you uh Social media, you have uh, any kind of any kind of presence on uh, Facebook, Twitter, or any website, any of that good stuff? Yeah, I, I'm on Facebook as just a general person. You know, you can always reach out to me, Carl Alvarez. Uh, I do have a Twitter. Um, it's I think it's oh God. What is it? Um, I forget. That Carl is my handle, but you can find me there. And of course, the the Inside Metal has a Facebook page and Twitter right. uh, as well, so you can kind of have those avenues to reach out nice nice well uh you know i finally get to talk to you Th three titles in but uh at least uh at least we finally got to do this and uh, i definitely appreciate you taking the time for talking to us and you know bob for uh for pushing to get this all set up but again it, it's cool to finally actually uh, get on the line with you oh that's great scott and i want to commend you too on putting in the time and energy of what you do because you know, I don't think anybody's paying you per se, but you're getting a lot out of it from people and yourself when you do these sorts of things. So I, I say keep on keeping on, and I appreciate what you do there. Hey, no problem. And uh, have yourself a good rest of the evening. And uh, again, I appreciate you taking a little bit of your day off to, to talk with us here on Focus on Metal. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Scott. All right, man. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Bye-bye now. I was going to 
actually do a whole episode talking about L.A. Thrash without playing some Slayer, did you? I mean, come on. So once again, big thanks to this week's guest, uh, filmmaker Carl Alvarez. It was pretty cool to finally get uh, Carl on the show. I know that uh, when the last one came out, Bob was talking about, yeah, you guys should really talk to Carl, and we just never could quite pull it together. And in fact, even, I mean, you think about the since the release date to when this is running, that it actually took us even a couple of months to really pull things together and uh, get a sit down with Carl. And of course, granted, the whole front end of the press, like I said before, was handled by uh, the very capable Dave Ellison, who does, I must say, an awesome job doing the narration on the uh, L.A. thrash metal part of the series. So as I told Bob before, I think this is a pretty cool concept, and I uh, you know, kind of hinted to Carl as well. I'm hoping that they continue this, and I know Bob and I had talked before about the fact that maybe they'll do some some city-to-city type of things and do uh, inside metal for New York and Boston and, I don't know, Old Bridge, New Jersey, I guess would be a great location, and of course San Francisco. And, and uh, Anyways, you get the general picture. And I think ultimately in the bigger scheme of things, it's just that I like metal documentaries. I mean, I was pretty psyched when Sam Dunn's came out, and now we've had some other ones coming out after that as well. But it's amazing to think, as I said to Carl, that you know, a few years back, there was pretty much nothing out there. Or if you did, it was it was pretty crappy. But now we're really getting some, uh, some pretty cool stuff that uh, is in our little metal ear holes and eye holes. And even cooler that it's, it's on streaming services and stuff now as well. And not some kind of specialty channel or any of that kind of crap that uh, it's almost like uh, metal and thrash has gone mainstream while we were sleeping. You know, maybe that little nap we took while uh, grunge was uh, stomping all over the uh, music industry that uh, metal was just quietly hibernating and waiting until it would come back to its uh, full and uh, expected glory. Holy crap, I am in a philosophical mood. But anyways... That is it for this week. As always, you can keep up with us at FocusOnMetal.net, at uh, FocusOnMetal.blogspot.com. As I always say, you can always hit up Richie on Facebook. Guy's always up there, always up for a discussion, a little bit of uh, metal banter. And uh, he's uh, been doing a little bit of uh, you know different uh, important metal dates here and there, things like that, reminders. But uh, anyways, always appreciate all the great job that Richie does on Facebook, most definitely because then it means I don't have to. And you can always hear from me on Twitter. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. And until we talk to you again next week, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.